The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, if you weren't here last week, I hope you had a great holiday weekend. We had kind of a fun holiday weekend here. Our summer holiday tradition, if you don't know and you weren't here, is to do a BBQ&A on Memorial Day, which is a clever expression, but we did a uh, cookout, and we, instead of a sermon, we had a Q&A time with the pastors, and that was fun. Those of you who are here, uh, it's good to spend that time with you. Uh, it's good to have you back if you were traveling, and we, um, because of that special event, we took a little break in this message series that we are in the middle of, actually kind of just starting the second half of it. In the book of Ephesians, we've called it Healthy Missional Church. And so we've been looking at all the different ways that Paul describes in the book of Ephesians what it looks like to be in healthy community with each other and to be a missional body of believers. And so today, we're going to be picking it up in Ephesians chapter 5 again, um, picking it up again in chapter 5. This is the first time we've looked at chapter 5. And uh, if you want to follow along as I read this, I'm going to read the section, the passage that we'll be looking at tonight, which is verses 1 through 20. Um, The red Bible's under your chairs. It's on page 951. It's about that far back in the Bible, (laughs) near the end. It's okay to read along with your own Bible or just to listen if you'd rather just listen, but it won't be on the screen. So, um, I'll just read this passage and then we'll, we'll go back and look at it a little bit at a time. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you, as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, sleep or awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, 
but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, having heard that passage and read along, um, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh man, it's going to be one of those sermons. Fornication, debauchery, the wrath of God. (laughs) Well, um, maybe it is. (laughs) Maybe it is. Uh, We'll see how this goes. I promise to be gentle with this text, but one of the reasons that I kind of like preaching from um, a Bible text starting there rather than starting with an idea and supporting it with biblical text is that you come across a passage like this where you're like, oh man, I'd rather not talk about that. And uh, tough luck, you have to do it. It's in the Bible. You told people six weeks ago that today was going to be about Ephesians 5, chapter, one, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And so here we are, and we have to talk about it. Um, let's see how it shakes out. But looking at, uh, at this passage, and looking at the first verse of chapter 5, And knowing me as you do, what is the first question that I'm going to ask of this passage? What is the therefore, therefore? I love it. I will remember the exegetical rule. I don't have a gold star. Does anybody have a gold star? No. (laughs) Apparently apparently you don't. I'm sorry, but I will email you, like, I'll post something on your Facebook wall that has a gold gold star or something like that. What is the therefore, therefore? You know that I always ask this question because when something starts with therefore, it's not fair to move on because it's very obviously connected to what came before. Um, And so even if it doesn't have direct bearing on the sermon, I always go back and say, well, this is what he means. And it's a real real quick um, backtrack here to 432, the verse right before that is talking about being kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. That is the reason for what he's about to say, that God in Christ has forgiven us. Therefore, because of that, and all the things that will follow, the fun stuff we were talking about a second ago. So what is the therefore, therefore, is one of my favorite exegetical rules. Exegesis is just the process of pulling out what the Scripture means. And another technique that I think is really useful when you're studying the Bible, and you you can and should do this on your own at home, is to look at a passage and find if there are words that are repeated throughout the passage. Um, And if you don't like to write in your Bible, you might want to print it out from the Internet or photocopy it or something like that, so that you can actually mark down. Like, if I'm doing this, I'll usually say, okay, there's a word, I'll circle it. When it comes up, there's another circle. Here's another word that seems to come up a few times. I'll put a square around that. And then so you have a visual picture of what's in the passage. And... Sometimes it's a, a profound theological word. So, for example, if you were looking at uh, the letter of 1 John, chapter 4, which has 21 verses in it, you would see the word love 30 times. 30 times in 21 verses, he uses the word love. So, 1 John, chapter 4 is about love, right? There's like more circles than you can even see through if you do that on your paper. So, sometimes it's this important profound theological word that's just over and over again, and you can, you can just get your arms around it and unpack it. Um, sometimes, though, it's, it's, uh, it's much less exciting. And that's the case in this passage. 
So I was going to see if, if I give you like 10 or 15 seconds to scan through Ephesians 5, 1 through 20. Can you see if, if you can find the word that is the most common word in this passage? If you do happen to see it, you can shout it out, but I will. I'm sorry? Which word was that? Darkness is in there a couple times. We'll get to darkness, but that is not the most common word in the passage. Looking for a shorter word. Most common word in the passage is the word but. Yes. Let's, let's get all the juvenile chuckling about the word but out of the way right now. The buts in this passage are unbelievable. There's, there's lots of big buts in this passage. All right. We need to talk about our buts. Okay. <laughs> um, you, <laughs> you, I'm not sure that's <laughs> actually computes, Grant, but I, I appreciate the offer. <laughs> he, he offered to be the butt jiggler. <laughs> This is, but this, of course, is butt with one T, right? If you're talking about the other butt, like a pork butt, it would be two T's. Uh, but it is, I'm going to say the word a lot of times, and so I figured if we're going to chuckle about it, we might as well just admit it and get it over with. But the word butt, grammatically, has a fairly obvious purpose. It, it's to connect two opposing ideas, right? And you can tell... You've had crucial conversations in your life that had a but in the middle of them, right? If you were in a relationship with somebody and they come up to you and said, I really like you a lot, but you know what's coming next is not good. I like him more. Ouch. Or it's, you've really contributed a lot to this company over the years, but... (laughs) We're cutting budget and we need to lay you off, right? So the word but is actually a fairly powerful little word. And in the case of this passage, the word but gives the, gives the passage its entire structure. The whole purpose of the passage is to set in opposition to each other competing ways of life, incompatible ideas about how you should live. And so you see the word but in there, I think, eight times in these 20 verses. Not quite as common as the word love in 1 John chapter 4, but still pretty common. And as I was, once I saw that the passage was laid out this way when I was studying it this week, you know, don't do this, but do that instead, it made me think of uh, a very early Christian document called the Didache. Didache just means teaching. And the Didache was an early manuscript, an early um, manual, I should say, for Christian living, for holy living. And it starts with one of the most concise and simple but very beautiful things I think church history has given us uh, outside the Bible itself. And so I wanted to show you how this, this um, document starts. The Didache starts out with these words. It says, there are two ways, one of life and one of death but a great difference between the two ways. You see that but in there. And in Ephesians 5, the word is going to function similarly here. There are two ways, 
One of life and one of death, but there's a great difference between the two ways. And it goes on to say, the way of life then is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, your neighbor as yourself. And all things whatsoever you would should not occur to you, do not also do to another. So if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, you can see that the Didache is, is repeating these central teachings about moral living that Jesus taught. The great commandment. Um, the golden rule, that kind of thing. And so I'd like to talk about this, this but two different ways of life dynamic. Um, and so what I've done is put the specifics from the passage onto a, a table that will appear behind me as we talk through this. And we'll look at the, uh, the different usages. Uh, and the idea is that Paul throughout says the same, uses the same structural technique. He says, don't do this, but instead do that, all right? And the first instance of the word but in there is in verse 4. You can look at that with me if you'd like. He says, entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, this one, to me, unlike some of the others that will follow, is kind of... um, it seems like a non sequitur to me a little bit. These don't seem like they are opposites of each other, which is what I would have expected Paul to say. Don't be obscene, silly, and vulgar. Instead, be, you know, what would it be? Um, use appropriate words and, and speak wisely and, and that kind of thing. But no, instead what he says is no obscene, silly, or vulgar talk. Instead, thanksgiving. And I, I was suddenly struck by this funny image uh, of myself. If I were trying to live out this passage, anytime I wanted to, I mean, of course, I wouldn't say something obscene or vulgar, but sometimes I say things that are silly. So let's go with silly. If I wanted to say something that was silly, and suddenly I could not speak until I said something that expressed thanksgiving to, to God or to another person, I think I probably wouldn't talk very much, <laughs> first of all. But that was just kind of a funny image to me. Like, I don't know. And I don't necessarily think that Paul is saying the, the technique or the trick to ridding yourself of obscene, silly, and vulgar talk is to speak words of thanksgiving all the time. But I, I, I thought maybe I would try that this week. Anytime I want to say something obscene or silly or vulgar, I will try at that point to stop, first of all, and not say those words or things or whatever it is. And then not actually say anything until I give thanks to, to, about something. And um, you can ask Tracy later how quiet I am this week, I guess. But uh, if anybody would like to play along at home, you can maybe try that this week too. Um, so that's the first one. Entirely out of place is this type of talk. So it's, it's about the language that we use. The next one uh, is in verse 8. And in verse 8, he says, For once you were darkness... But now in the Lord, you are light. And reading on, he says that you are to live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. I I think that the, um, incidentally, the word fruit there uh, is less like a fruit of a tree, but more like the fruit of one's loins. Have you heard that phrase? It's a very King James English phrase, the fruit of my loins, meaning my 
children, my offspring. Um, and the, the word there is karpos. It's a Greek word. It can mean either fruit of a tree or offspring of a, of a person or a being. And so there, there's this sense that we were in darkness and now we're, we're light and we need to live as children of light, God being the ultimate source of this spiritual light and we, we needing to live as his children, basically. And so if we move on to our next but statement, it's actually a continuation of this idea. It's in verse 11, and Paul continues the themes of, of darkness and light, and he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So there's an interesting textual parallelism there where he's used the fruit term now in two different ways. Um, but take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. See, darkness and light is a very abstract spiritual metaphor on the face of it, isn't it? I mean, you could talk to just about any spiritual person in America about darkness and light, and they won't be offended, and they won't think you're, you're, you're forcing your religion on them, and they'll speak back, oh yeah, sure, darkness and light. Darkness and light, it's a very vaguely spiritual topic, and I think that that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use it, but... It just it doesn't have a particular creedal attachment yet. But it also speaks about, in the next verse, hiddenness versus exposure, which becomes not so vague. It's actually a highly practical spiritual truth, I think, that that which we cover up and keep in darkness will continue to eat away at us, but that which we expose will actually change from darkness into light. By definition, if there's darkness and you shine light on it, the darkness is gone. It's now light. So the vaguely spiritual reality about darkness and light transitions really neatly into a, a kind of a brilliant practical solution, which is that if you have darkness in your life, you need to expose that not a very comfortable truth. You start talking to generic spiritual American, and they're on board with darkness and light, and then you start saying to them, anything that's dark in your, light, in your life, you need to expose that to other people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. My life is my life. It's not your business what my particular darkness is. And then Paul goes on, and he's, he's using this as an extension of the darkness and light theme. If you look at verse 14, everything that is visible, everything that becomes visible is light. And then he says, therefore it says, sleep or awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What, what does he mean, therefore it says? What is he doing there? Do you remember writing English papers? And how if you were going to provide a citation from the original text or from supporting criticism, you always, the English teacher said, you, you need to introduce your citations. You can't just be typing along and then suddenly quoting something. You have to give your reader, your evaluator, some indication that you're about to quote something else, right? Did you, anybody write English papers in school? <laughs> like, around this place, it's like, I could tell you about a frictionless inclined plane, <laughs> I don't know about English, but 
Trust me, I, I couldn't tell you the first thing about frictionless inclined planes, uh, except that it seemed like a silly exercise to imagine them since they don't exist. Um, but I wrote lots of English papers, and I know that you have to introduce your citation. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, therefore, it says, well, what is it? We don't know necessarily, but clearly he thought his readers would know. It's like if I said, therefore, it says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. What am I quoting? Amazing grace. You all know that. I don't need to tell you what it is. And he doesn't need to tell his readers what this is. And what we think it probably is, is a hymn that was used at baptism. And so all of these converts to Christianity in the Ephesians church and in Asia Minor, it's very likely that they would have heard these words sung at the most significant spiritual moment of their lives when they were baptized into the Christian faith, baptized into the Christian church. And Paul is is making them recall that. He's triggering that memory for them and saying, everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, that's why it says in that baptismal hymn, sleeper awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So he's connecting the spiritual reality that he's talking about with something that's very familiar to his readers. And I think that 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 technique is really really kind of fun to look at in the New Testament. And Paul does it a lot, actually. Um, In the book of Colossians, you may have heard us talk about how there's a section in there that we think is probably a Christian creed. It talks about Jesus in very explicit theological language. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from among the dead. And in him, all things were made and came into being. And in the book of Philippians, there's another one called the Kenosis Hymn, where It talks about Jesus having emptied himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we think that that's probably another Christian hymn, early Christian hymn. And the reason that that's important to us is because it gives evidence of the fact that these explicit theological ideas were already in place even before those letters were written. Now, in the case of Colossians, we're thinking like 65, 70 AD, just decades after the ministry of Jesus. And... And these Christian documents and hymns that are familiar to his readers must have been written well before that for, him to, for them to be in the public consciousness. And so when you read the Da Vinci Code stuff and it suggests that, you know, Christian theology didn't really develop until some dudes made it up in the fourth century, well, you can say that, but you'd be wrong. Because <laughs> not only is it in this text that was written in the middle to late first century, but it was quoting something that was already established, especially this heavily theological language. So it's kind of interesting that he does that. And so when you combine the usage of this baptismal hymn with what I was talking about earlier with the Didache, I think it's, it's becoming clear that, that what Paul wants to do, at least in this part of this book, is to recall, to remind his, his audience, the, churches in, in, the church in Ephesus and in Asia Minor, of the most basic spiritual religious truth that they know, which is the Didache puts as, there are two ways, a way of life and a way of death. And there's actually a very great difference between the two ways. And the most basic teaching of Christianity is that Christ has wrought a change in us and in in you, his readers, he's saying, And so they ought to live accordingly. So if you are following Jesus and you are not on the way of life, 
by what your actions and attitudes and language are demonstrating, then there is something wrong there. That's the, that's the point. So let's go on to the next but statement in verse 15. It says, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. That's fairly clear. Then he, then he says, Making the most of the time because the days are evil. Now, I'm not 100% sure what he means by that, the days are evil. But it seems to me that it's kind of a Christian version of carpe diem. You have to make the most of the time. And, and the idea is that, that it's, it is downright evil how fast these days go by. And if you're not paying attention and making the most of the time that you've been given, you're going to look up and 10 years have gonna, gone by and you're going to be still floundering and you're going to wonder what happened. So make the most of the time you've been given and live wisely, not unwisely. And he continues that theme in the next usage of this, this but dichotomy, verse 17. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, it's possible that you read those words and you think, that's not entirely fair. I've been seeking God's will for my life on some particular issue for months, and I don't feel like I have an answer. Does that therefore mean that I'm a fool? Well, I think it depends on how you define what the will of God actually is. Uh, and if you, you've heard me talk about this before, you know that I have a, probably a slightly different perspective on what the will of God is than most of my colleagues who are evangelical pastors and so forth. And I think that the common folk-level understanding of what the will of God means is, is unhelpful. And um, like some of you in the room, I went to a small Christian college, and if you want to magnify the, the, the goofiest, <laughs> craziest expressions of, of weird Christian theology and practice, there's no better place to go find that than in a, a place where there's 2019 year old Christians. <laughs> um, and I remember when I was at uh, this unnamed Christian college that's in North Chile, um, how people would talk about the will of God as if it was some needle in a haystack that they had to find. I'm just seeking the, the will of the Lord for what my major should be, because they didn't bother to write it down when they started college. I'm seeking the will of the Lord for the person that he has for me that I should marry. Or I'm seeking God's will for whether I should have the chicken or the steak in the cafeteria tonight. I'm just praying that the parking lot has the, the, the perfect space that's in the center of God's will for me. In my life. I'm exaggerating ever so slightly. But not that much. I think the will of God in the New Testament is painfully clear. There's like five instances in the New Testament where the author says, The will of the Lord is this. And none of them have to do with chicken and steak or anything like that. It's always, the will of the Lord is that you should be saved. Uh. 
The will of the Lord is that you should live a holy lifestyle. It's God's will that you give thanks in all circumstances. You, you sense the common theme here in these definitions of what God's will is? They're not really that complicated. They're not necessarily easy. But it's not hard to figure out what it is. Now, can you use those generalized definitions of what God's will is to figure out where you should work or what you should study or whom you should marry or any of those things? Of course you could. And in fact, if you don't, that would be foolish. This is the point I think that Paul is making here. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of God is and live accordingly. So don't be insulted if you don't feel like you know exactly what God might want you to do. Because sometimes, I mean, God does call you to do specific things sometimes. But that doesn't make you foolish if you don't know the specific thing just yet. It might make you foolish if you know the generalized things and you're ignoring those principles. In some ways, it would be really nice if you were more specific, wouldn't it? Well, I think there are some, I mean, there's some specific guidelines for Christian living. Um, but if you're asking, why isn't he more specific about what, what exact thing we should do next with our lives? Well, I think one reason is that that would be a violation of our will. And I'm not, I don't think God is in the business of violating our free will. Um, and, and in fact, when we do things that honor him and demonstrate love for him out of our own freedom, not because he's told us to do some specific thing, I think that's actually a, a very godly thing that, that God is pleased with. Um, so, and as I said, I kind of tossed it aside, but I do think there are times when God gives us very specific direction. I don't mean to discount that. Um, but you don't, you don't find those kind of things in the Bible because they're not applicable to everybody at all times. So. And the final but statement in Ephesians 5, 1 through 20, comes in verse 18. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Anybody know what debauchery actually means? It's, one of, it's kind of a buzzword. Debauchery simply means overindulgence in a sensual pleasure. And that could take lots of different forms. I'm sure you're imagining some of them right now. But the one that he seems to be focused on in this passage is drunkenness. Now, if you've been here any length of time, you know that at Artisan, we, uh, we are not teetotalers. In fact, we're probably overly self-conscious about the fact that we're not teetotalers, and we always brag about the beer that's fermenting in the utility closet, or we talk about how it's okay to drink beer here, you just can't drink light beer here, and we go on and on about this, trying to make ourselves feel really cool about it. And I, would just, I think I would like us to get over ourselves somewhat about that. In other sectors of the church, I think their approach to alcohol, the problem with their approach to alcohol is that they think it must for all people be complete abstinence from alcohol. And they raise their children up that way to think that the tiniest little drop of beer or wine or liquor is going to send them careening over the edge. And then what happens? 
The kids go to high school and they have their first sip of beer or liquor or wine and they don't go creening over the edge and they think, hey, that was a load of crap. I can do whatever I want. Chug, chug, chug. And then they go careening over the edge. Do you see how this is not helpful? I think that is the, the error that some sectors of the church make when they talk about alcohol. We do not make that error here. I think we sometimes make the opposite error here and say, enjoy it. God made barley. God made grapes. Press them in and cause whatever chemical reactions you'd like and enjoy the results. That is a sensual pleasure. On a hot day, a glass of Sauvignon Blanc is wonderful or a, a bottle of Miller, whatever is your thing. Not Miller? He shook her, she shook her head, no, no. Maker's Mark, you know, whatever it is. Man, I worry that sometimes we're a little too flippant about it. And I'm a person who's flippant about it almost every time I talk about it. So I'm guilty of that. I would hate for you to think that when I talk about, you know, how cool we are because we brew beer, that that means that you can drink as much of it as you can fit into your belly and act however you'd like as a result. That is debauchery by the definition of the word. And so let me echo Paul's words and say to you, do not be filled up with wine. I don't like wine. I'm drinking beer. Do not be filled up with beer. Do not be filled up with bourbon. (laughs) Do not be filled up with gin and tonics. Whatever your thing is. I, I can't really get any other meaning out of this except to say that drunkenness is irresponsible and it is not one of the things that fits on the way of life. It's one of the things that fits on the other way. And there's actually a very great difference between those two ways. And I think it's also interesting that he goes on to say, after instead of being drunk, and, drunk with wine, filled up with wine, you should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he starts talking about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, I've seen Lord of the Rings. I know that drunkenness also results in singing. So I think it's kind of cool that this being filled with the Spirit ought to also bring joy to our hearts so that we sing. And sometimes we sing like that church that Eddie Izzard talks about in that. You guys seen that video, right? Who can sing that hymn? Like it's, oh God, our help in ages past or something like that. How does he sing it? Like, oh God, our help in ages past. (laughs) Hope for years to come. Man, that's really boring. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of singing corresponds to a different type of sensual indulging. (laughs) That comes more in the form of brownies and and inhalables. (laughs) We want to be filled with the Spirit and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I think this that verse actually, by the way, not that you care, is the answer to the worship wars about whether we should sing praise choruses or sing hymns or whether we should use 
songs in church that aren't necessarily meant for church, and I think it's all right there, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There you go. Let's do all of them. That's, a, that's a, an aside. So that's how he finishes up this stream of point-counterpoint about Christian moral living. And I guess in a way, as a result of going through all these things, I have preached one of those sermons that we were all worried about at the beginning of our time together tonight. It certainly has been packed with very definite, specific moral teaching, which really, when you think about it, is the only kind that offends us, the specific kind. We are great with the vaguely spiritual morality, right? If only Paul had left it as you once were darkness and now you are light and you should live as children of light. And let us fill in the blanks and do whatever we want as long as we think we're in the light. That would have been a lot easier. But no, there's some harsh specifics in there. But despite those harsh specifics, I think there actually is a very clear uh, so-called 50,000-foot view of Christian morality. Right. The, the bird's eye view, the, the grand scope of the whole thing is also very clear. And to me, it just is a repetition of what the Didache taught those earliest Christian believers. There are two ways, a way of life and a way of death. And there's a difference between the two ways. You know, um, I couldn't help but be reminded this week of the, the American poem that I probably hate the most of all American poetry, which is the Robert Frost, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Do you know that poem? Does anybody else feel the same way about it as I do? <laughs> Sick to death of that poem and people shoving it in your face. and like. But I actually found a, I, I, that poem was recovered for me this week somewhat. Because I always read it, I think, wrong. I thought it was like, I took the road less traveled by and listened to indie music, and therefore I was cooler than everybody else, right? <laughs> I don't think that's quite what he's saying. In fact, if you look at th- that poem, um, one of the things that he says, well, I'll just read you the third stanza to that poem. He's talking about these two roads in the wood and how he takes one, not the other. And he says, both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. And that, to me, does contain at least a small nugget of spiritual truth. The point of the poem is, is the reason it's made all the difference is because once you start on one road, you're probably not going to get back to the fork in the road again. That's your chance. Pick your road. Once you take a few steps, that's your road. Now, I think the great, wonderful truth of of the Christian faith is that you can be plucked off of one road and put onto another and receive the righteousness of Christ in the power of his death and resurrection, not in your own power. See, the way of life and death, you can't get on the way of life on your own anyway. So the point of these, all this moral teaching is not, 
please don't hear this, is not that you have to do all these good moral things because that's how you get right with God. That's how you get on the way of life. No, that's how you grind yourself into insanity. The point of this passage, instead, is that God has made you righteous. You have been adopted into the family of God. You have received the righteousness of Christ himself. Therefore, don't screw it up and don't violate it and don't insult it by living as if you are still on the way of death because you are on the way of life. And so you have to ask yourself, if you're following Christ, if you're a Christian, which of those specifics, those harsh specifics from this passage, are tugging at me and trying to pull me off the way of life and onto the other way? Is it the language that you use? Are you prone to obscene or silly or vulgar talk? Is it otherwise the words that come out of your mouth because you don't build people up, you tear people down with them? Whatever it might be, is it the language that you use? Is it foolishness, almost a willful foolishness to avoid what the will of God is and to live unwisely? Is it overindulgence in sensual pleasure, whether that's alcohol, sex, Drugs. Can't have too much rock and roll, but <laughs> I see that hand. <laughs> but whatever it is, I want to remind you of verse one of chapter five, which says that we are called to be imitators of God and to live in love. That's the thesis of the whole passage. And if you if we're not living up to that what he says kind of halfway through, following up on the darkness and light theme, remember, is that you need to expose the way that you're not living up to that calling. And so there's lots of different ways that you could expose the darkness in your life to other people. And uh, the way that I've chosen is for each of us to stand up in turn and share it with the room. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think actually that's appropriate in some context once in a while to do that. But that's not what I'm going to ask you to do tonight. What I am going to say to you, though, is that if you don't have any relationship in your life where it's okay to share the darkness that still eats away at you and to expose it by shining light on it, that you need that kind of relationship in your life. And some of you do. I've been in groups with some of you where that was okay. And that was the whole point of being together was to share what you're struggling with. I think that's crucial for Christians to be involved in some kind of discussion like that. But I also know that it's not realistic to expect all of you to go out and find that this week. So what I would say is this. If you do have that relationship or relationships built into your life already, take that seriously. And, and maybe this week you want to expose that darkness in a way that you've not necessarily been willing to do before because by definition, shining light on it makes it not darkness anymore. That's the practical spiritual side of that vague thing. 
But if you don't have those relationships built into your life already, one thing that you could do is very simply just write something on an info card. When those info cards um, go into the offering baskets or into the black box at the end of the night, the people who count the offering don't read through them. So you're not sharing your darkness with, you know, the finance guy. (laughs) All that happens with those is they get put in a pile and handed to one of the pastors. And so if you will, if you would like to to have that kind of disclosure as a spiritual exercise this week, um, during our communion time, you can take a minute or two and write down whatever it is you'd like to write down, and and one of the pastors will contact you this week and, and maybe get the ball rolling on that conversation because I do think it's an important thing to do. And so that's the very simple response that I would uh, ask of you and suggest for you is to write something down and, uh, and we'll, we'll try to get you help with that and get you talking about it, which actually is the help, I think. So, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the uh, righteousness of your Son, Christ, which we receive in faith. And thank you for the grace that enables us to follow you in spite of our shortcomings. And we ask for your grace uh, as we pursue that life of Christ, as we seek to be imitators of you and to live lives of love, that your grace would continue to flow to us having already been the, the source of our salvation, that it would be the source of our sanctification, the source of our holiness, not our own efforts, though we must make effort, but your grace. And as we step out in faith on the assumption that that grace will support us, uh, give us courage and strength. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So our communion table is open now. And uh, if you're following Jesus, whether you think you are an A+, or whether you think you're 99 steps down the road to death, if you are seeking to follow Jesus in this place, our table is open for you. And I invite you to come to the table and tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or the juice, simply remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me and for all of us and receiving that as nourishment for your souls. And uh, if you'd like to sit and meditate or pray or write something down, uh, you can certainly do that. You don't need to hustle and line up to, to the table. We'll have it open for the next 20 minutes or so while we sing some more songs together. Um, but the table's open now, and I'd uh, call you and invite you to come and respond as God leads you. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.